Hello, this is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist, episode 11. Welcome back. In this episode, we'll be dealing exclusively with the Hegelian dialectic. And I know that's an interesting sounding word, and we'll be discussing it in, in detail. First of all, what are, what are dialectics? What, is this, what does this mean? Well, before we get into it, let me mention that as one of the administrators of the Hegel Study Group, I have to admit people that ask to, to join our group. And one of the questions that we ask is, uh, why are you interested in Hegel? And probably the, by far the two biggest responses that we get are dialectics and Marx. And we won't be talking much about Marx today, but uh, it's important that somehow the term dialectics has become very much associated with, uh, with Hegelian philosophy. So it's, um, it's a funny sounding word. It, 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 it almost can sound like Dianetics of Scientology, like it's some weird method or teaching. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to break it down in this episode. The term goes back to ancient Greece, and it has several different connotations. Dialectics can mean discussion, argument, debate, contradiction. Um, it can mean um, um, complementary opposites and their interaction. And it's been used somewhat differently by different philosophers. And uh, both Aristotle and Hegel credit the ancient Greek Zeno as being the first dialectician, which is kind of interesting. And we'll be actually discussing Zeno in some detail a little bit later. So what is the dialectical method meant throughout the ages? What, how has this term been used? Well, the first one to really deal with it was Plato. And he, he talked about it in terms of the Socratic method. And for those of you that, that know your Plato, he wrote dialogues. And oftentimes Socrates was one of the main characters in his, in his dialogues. And Socrates would uh, engage others in, in, in the town to uh, various philosophical discussions. And what's interesting here, using this approach, uh, you got to see contradiction and debate and argument. Um, but just as an aside, what's also interesting is you never really know what Plato himself, the writer of these dialogues, was thinking. You only can surmise this based on what uh, his character Socrates and whoever he's talking with are talking about. And that puts you and the reader in a very interesting position of having to sort of make up your own mind uh, about how you think. You're not just being told this is what Plato believes, but you're shown an argument and you sort of come in as a judge and jury and make up your own mind. Now, Hegel uh, felt that uh, Plato's use of, of the term dialectics in this dialogue was not true dialectics in, the, in how he meant the term, because Socrates often would, um, would only come up with a, a negation of an argument. You know, Socrates famously said that, I, I know nothing, I claim to know nothing, but he could destroy anybody's argument that claimed to know anything. So Hegel felt that there needed to be a resolution to the conflict, and we'll get into more of this later. Um, Aristotle, of course, discusses dialectical thinking and rhetoric and logic and debate to a great extent through much of his writings. And 
Following Aristotle, not much happened to the term dialectics. There wasn't much change over the intervening years until Hegel came along. Hegel revitalized the term and gave it its own special meaning. As an aside, after Hegel, um, I mentioned Karl Marx, he also picked up the term dialectic and used it um, in terms of his own dialectical materialism and uh, his historical materialism. Um, Marx and Engels were, were deeply influenced by Hegel, but they went in an entirely different direction. As Marx has said, he turned Hegel on his head. Again, we're not here to talk about Marx, we're here to talk about Hegel. So let's talk about uh, dialectics. What did this mean for Hegel? And uh, I'll start by saying what the purpose of dialectics is according to Hegel. And this comes from the Encyclopedia of Philosophical Sciences from Hegel. Uh, the purpose of dialectics is, and I quote, to study things in their own being and movement, and thus to demonstrate the finitude of the partial categories of understanding. Now, a key point here is that Hegel's stating is to study things in their own being and movement. Movement is a very important concept here, which I'll return to. Movement being linked to dialectics. Another thing he mentions in this quote is that dialectics um, is moving beyond the finitude of categories of understanding. And if you remember in the last episode, episode 10, we dealt a lot with understanding Verstand in German and reason, Vernunft in German. As, as we said in the last episode, understanding is linked much more to the left brain categories, making categories and separating things into their component parts, where reason is linked much more to the right brain, to an intuitive, holistic way of thinking. So Hegel is saying here that dialectics moves us beyond just left brain understanding into a complete um, immersion into the thing we're taking a look at. And we'll return to this. Now, Hegel's dialectics usually are um, looked at as a three-step process. Now, I should warn you that this is not a strict formulation. It's not a strict method. And, however, it, 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 this is common among much of what Hegel does. And it usually involves a, um, a process of what he describes as abstraction, negation, and then um, making something concrete. This is not thesis, antithesis, synthesis. And this is a common error that many people new to Hegel make. Even many people that are very familiar with Hegel continue to attribute these terms and this way of thinking to him. Um, the, the term thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, as I've said before in these episodes, um, were first coined by Fichte. Um, Schelling took up the terminology. Hegel did not. Um, the philosopher Walter Kaufman says it very well, sums this up in his book, Hegel, A Reinterpretation. Um, he, he says, the only place where Hegel uses the three terms together, that's um, thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, the only place where Hegel uses these three terms together occurs in his lectures on the history of philosophy, on the last page but one on the sections on Kant, where Hegel roundly reproaches Kant for having everywhere posited thesis, antithesis, synthesis. So what just is the difference between thesis, antithesis, synthesis, and abstract negation concrete? Is this just semantics or is there something really going on here? Well, there is something really going on here. First of all, thesis, antithesis, synthesis 
that formulation does not explain why the thesis requires an antith uh, antithesis. It, the thesis can just lay there. It's not, it doesn't have to have a, a, a contradiction. Now, in abstract negative concrete, um, it suggests that somehow the initial concept, the, the abstract idea, does, does need further development. Uh, it, the, the abstract notion may be true, uh, but since it's an abstract concept, it's not yet real, it's not yet actual. So for Hegel, the concrete, the real, comes by way of the negation of the abstract. The abstract first must be negated, then both the abstract and its negation are sublated into the concrete. Sublation is a negation of the negation. And this, in a nutshell, is the Hegelian dialectic. Let's talk a little bit more about sublation. As I mentioned in other episodes, Hegel's called sublation one of the most important concepts in philosophy. And to quote him, um, what is sublated on the one hand ceases to be and is put to an end, but on the other hand is preserved and maintained. It's from the science of logic. And we will see that this has much to do with the, the concept of motion. Um, we talked in uh, episode three about the beginning of the science of logic where Hegel talks about being and um, nothing and becoming. And this is a good example of um, becoming actually representing motion here. If you look at this in terms of time, um, in the present moment, it's, it's always both there and not there. It has being and non-being. It, it, it ceases to be and it comes into be. Um, yet somehow the, um, the now moment is preserved and maintained um, in, in, in a continual becoming. So this is the uh, sublation of being and nothing into becoming. So part of the Hegelian dynam dialectic is, is um, this, this sublation. So you have the abstract notion, you have its negation, then you have its uh, sublation into something concrete. So to summarize up to this point, the Hegelian dialectic is about movement of thought. It is how thought develops. It's used to study things and know things in their own being and movement. And again, it's generally done in three stages. However, it's not an abstract formula. It's not the hidden key of Hegel. It only works when applied to real thoughts and real things. And uh, we'll explore this notion further in a bit, but I want to go back to Zeno, who Hegel and Aristotle claimed was the founder of dialectics. So who is Zeno? Zeno of Alea. He, was, he lived in the 5th century BC. He studied under Parmenides, who was the founder of the um, Alaic, Alaic school of philosophy. Alea was a town founded by the Greeks in the west coast of Italy in 500, 500 BC, roughly. And we know of Zeno primarily through the writings of Plato and some others. Now, um, Hegel says in his own philosophy, history of philosophy, that Zeno, um, uh, pr that properly speaking, the dialectic begins with Zeno. And I'll quote, Zeno had the very important character of being the originator of the true objective dialectic. Another quote, Zeno's dialectic of matter has not been refuted to the present day. Even now we have not gotten beyond it, and the matter is left in uncertainty. 
Hmm, that's a pretty powerful statements coming from Hegel. So let's take a look at three of Zeno's uh, paradoxes and see what's going on. The first one we'll deal with is, um, is can be looked at as a person walking toward a wall. Uh, so picture a person in a room, they're standing away from one of the walls of the room, say they're 10 feet away. Now, if the person walks toward the wall, will they ever reach that wall? Well, before they can get to the wall, they have to go halfway there. So if they're 10 feet away from the wall, they have to go five feet away from the wall first. And then as they continue on, they have to go another halfway there. So they have to go another two and a half feet to get to the wall. And then before they reach the wall, they have to go another halfway there. So they have to go now one and a quarter feet and so forth. So as they continue, they always have to go halfway there before they can go the full way. And this halfway there can continue on forever. So they will never reach the wall because they always have to go halfway there first. So that's the first paradox. The second one I'll be talking about is something similar. It's called Achilles and the tortoise. And you can look at it as the hare and the tortoise race, but we'll, we'll keep the, the Achilles. He was a famous fast runner in ancient Greece. The paradox goes like this. Suppose you give the tortoise a head start. Say you put him 10 feet in front of Achilles and, and um, you start the race. Well, Achilles, by the time he gets to that 10 feet where the tortoise was, the tortoise will have moved a small amount forward. And by the time that Achilles gets to that next spot, where the tortoise had moved, the tortoise will, can, will have moved even further. So Achilles can never catch up to the tortoise because every time he gets up to the spot where the tortoise was, the tortoise would have moved a bit further. So he can never catch the tortoise. That's the paradox. And the third one is the concept of the fixed arrow. And if you shoot an arrow in the air at any fixed point, you can define a specific point in time and in space where that arrow is and lock down on it and take a picture of it. At that point, the arrow is motionless. And the point here is at every other point, the arrow is motionless. So there is no motion. Motion is impossible because at every single point, the arrow is motionless. So, the arrow does not move. That's the paradox. Now, obviously, the answer to all these paradoxes is that, of course, there is movement. There is flow. There is time. Aristotle pointed this out. However, it's really interesting that this is something that science has a hard time getting its head around. And this continues to this day. Einstein called time a vast sleight of hand, a vast illusion. Um, Julian Barber, a uh, physicist, recently, a few years ago, wrote a whole book on fixed points and motionless entities, that everything is just a fixed point like Zeno's arrow. And, and he explains how the illusion of movement um, comes from this. So uh, you have these paradoxes, and let's look at what Hegel says about Zeno and these paradoxes. He says, I quote, 
For Zeno's consciousness, we see simple, unmoved thought disappear, but become thinking movement, in that he combats sensuous movement, he concedes it. The reason that dialectic first fell on movement is that the dialectic is itself this movement, or movement itself, the dialectic of all that is. The key phrase here is the dialectic is itself this movement, or movement itself the dialectic of all that is. And further, Hegel states, Zeno's utterances are to be looked at from this point of view, not as being directly against the reality of motion, as would at first appear, but as pointing out how movement must necessarily be determined and showing the course which must be taken. So, Zeno's paradoxes point out two things. Um, there, there are two ways of looking at things. You can break things down into fixed points. That's more the understanding, left-brain thinking. Or you can look at things more holistically through movement. That's more reason, using Hegel's term, and right-brain thinking. So, a key to Hegelian philosophy um, is that Hegel puts movement becoming right at the center stage of being. And this is very important to understand the Hegelian dialectic. It is an overcoming, a sublation, of fixed determinative positioning. It is movement in its most essential form. Now finally, I'd like to discuss dialectics in terms of uh, a more modern um, person, the physicist David Bohm, and he had much to say on the Hegelian dialectic. Who was David Bohm? He was um, born in 1917, passed away in 1992. He was an American scientist who has been described as one of the most significant theoretical physicists of the 20th century. It's got an interesting life story. I'll just take it a little aside here. He was asked to join the Manhattan Project in 1942 to work on the A-bomb, but was actually then rejected by higher-ups when it was found that he had communist affiliation. Following that, he went to work um, with um, at Princeton University in, in the United States with Einstein. But um, during the um, communist scare in the United States in the 1950s, he was investigated by the U.S. government. Um, he was called to testify. He refused to answer questions, and he was actually jailed for a period of time. What an awful period that was in, in the United States. He was then subsequently fired from Princeton and left the country. And he took a teaching position in Brazil and then left that and went to London. Just for the record, he did renounce communism in 1956. He also, beyond this, he was truly a Renaissance thinker. He was well-versed in many other things in, than quantum physics. He, this included the philosophy of mind, consciousness, and importantly to us, Hegel. He had some very interesting comments on the Hegelian dialectic, and I'll be reading from some interviews he gave back in 1987. These have been recorded by the American Institute of Physics. They have um, an oral history interviews, and um, this is from um, the David Bohm season, excuse me, session 9 and 10. They were conducted in February of 1987. I'm going to do a number of quotes here that, that Bohm had to say on the Hegelian dialectic. First, he sees it as a process, and I quote, Hegel is always discussing the nature of thought as a process. This is something that I felt was very subtle and not appreciated in Hegel. He said, pay attention to thought. 
Now, one would ordinarily say, pay attention to things. But if you say, pay attention to thought, how it goes, you're treating it as a process. So he brings up a, an, an important discussion that we got into in the last episode. Reason, the right brain, needs its emissary, the left brain, to scope out the situation, to scope out the, what's going on in the territory, to crystallize it into something fixed, to break it down into something fixed. However, if it stays there and doesn't return, it leads to a contradiction, like Zeno showed. Here's the next quote from Bohm. Now it is necessary for the flowing reason to develop into, to crystallize into static reason. But then we make the mistake of saying that the truth, and when once it's, it is crystallized, that's going to stand forever. So I say the word verstand really means to stand. You want something that stands, which we need, but it doesn't stand forever. And therefore it goes back to flowing reason. It has its place, it's necessary to define, it is necessary for the flowing reason to define itself and make it stand for a while. Again, we covered this a lot in the last episode. He also interestingly points out to um, the fact that the common translations for Verstand and Vernunft, understanding and reason, may not be the best. And I quote, so Hegel's saying that there are two kinds of thought, roughly. One he calls verstand, which is falsely translated as understanding, but it should be standing firm, or the form of logic. The German word is not understand, but verstand, which is a translation of the Latin word for perception, meaning to hold firmly, to grasp firmly. Verstand is a, is a translation of to stand firm, not to understand. It can be used roughly and loosely as understand, but when they call it verstand, it really means form or logic. People using translations of Hegel often mistranslate that as understanding, and it becomes very confusing. Then he also has reason, which in English doesn't have the same meaning as in German. Also, understanding essentially means something very close to what Hegel means by reason. So you can see that a lot of confusion has developed. Vernunft is roughly translated as intuitive reason, which means it isn't formal logic. It's a sort of flowing. According to Hegel, this flows through contradiction. So, the translators got it backward. The word understand should have been the translation of the German word for reason, and the word verstand should have been translated as form or logic or a fixed thought or a thought with firmly defined assumptions. Now, I'm speaking. This is important. Aside from the lousy translations into England, English, Bohm is showing that how both types of thinking are necessary. Reason Renumft flows through the contradiction inevitable of the left brain, just like Zeno's paradoxes, just like every left brain contradiction. Bohm also had a very interesting concept of what he calls uh, the implicit, the explicit, and the generative orders. And I quote Bohm again. Now there was the idea in itself implicit that it has formed. Then it became for itself, by spreading itself out and looking at it, what it really is. That's the second stage. Then Hegel has the third stage, which is a much higher stage, which is the idea in and for itself, or the unity of what it is in itself and for itself. Now, we talked about this um, in a lot of detail in episode six on Martin Luther King, the um, in itself, for itself, and then in and for itself. Let me continue with Bohm. As he describes it, you get this flash. It's there at once. And then you work it out in time and then spread it out in space and so on. You draw diagrams, you write it out. You imagine it spread out in front of you. You're making it explicit, unfolding it. 
by looking at it, you see whether there's any value in the idea and whether it may have been a false idea or also what it means, how to go further with it and so on. If you just keep it implicit, it's very limited what it can do. That's the way I say, and I'm speaking now, when you get an idea, write it down. Never leave the sight of an idea without taking a note of it and uh, making a note of it. And that, I got that actually from Tony Robbins, the uh, success coach. Anytime you get an idea, write it down. That's it. They've taken some action. You've, you've, um, you've made it somewhat explicit. Um, Bohm goes on, let me quote him. The question then is to bring that together again in a higher stage, which goes to for itself and then it becomes in it for itself. The division of subject and object then disappears, but is now at a higher level. Now that fits in with Hegel because you would say there could be nothing worse than opposites. Let's say you set up two opposites and it seems you must choose one or the other. Hegel says, no, you don't have to. You form a new concept, which would be like if it were somewhere in between. Both opposites are in it, but not in any independent way. So when it's characterized, it's somewhere between these two opposites, but it goes tangentially in a new direction altogether. It's like saying between north and south doesn't mean somewhere in a line between them, but it may be another direction entirely. This is an excellent take on the Hegelian dialectic from Bohm. And just again, as an aside, there's some of you in the United States may recall, or even outside the United States, the former president Bill Clinton used a strategy called triangulation of political ideas to great success. When he was president, he would take one side and the other side, but he formed a, a new a new direction, and that worked that worked for him. So. Um, and some even pointed out the, the, the Hegelian dialectic in that process that Clinton used. So to summarize, um, Hegel brought a new perspective on the dialectic. We've shown that it involves both of his concepts of reason and understanding, and most importantly, it's a movement. The Hegelian dialectic is certainly not static. So I want to thank you all for listening to this particular episode. Uh, let me note that you can follow me on Twitter at, um, at Cunning of Geist. And I also have, have set up a Facebook page for this podcast, which is at Cunning of Geist. So you, you're, you're welcome to, uh, to follow me there and, and comment. So I want to thank you again for listening. I'm Gregory Novak. This is the Cunning of Geist. See you next time.